Manhattan spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. You know flat earthers, I guarantee it. But you don't know who they are because they're afraid of talking about it. This is not a test. This is your emergency broadcast system. Hello and welcome to the 207th annual Subliminal Inception Podcast, your weekly dose of conspiracy theory bullshit. My name is Cody. I'm my pal Phil. How are you? Doing good, buddy. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. It was a nice, pleasant weekend. I really wish it didn't have to go to work, you know, Monday, but unfortunately... Mm-hmm. Fourth of July kind of landed on an odd weekend, but it sounds like... You are having an extended weekend. Yeah, PTO kind of piled up and I ended up having to take a couple of days. So got a pretty uh, pretty decent weekend. So I'm uh, coming right to the end of that. Go back to work, then another weekend. So it's it's all coming back. But yeah, no, I had a, I had a good weekend too. You know, hung out with the family for the fourth. Didn't see the fireworks this year. So glad for that. Just kind of went home and went straight to bed. <laughs> Get in the old man mode. You You want no kids? Don't need to see the fireworks. You want to hear old man? So (laughs) I had been eyeballing a new bed for a few months now, right? And (laughs) on Fourth of July weekend, it was almost sixty percent off. So I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna bite the bullet, and I just got a bed. And then, of course, you have to get all the fucking horse shit that goes with it you know, pillows, blankets, yada, yada, yada. And the last thing I needed was my bed frame, right? And I'm like, okay, it'll finally be complete once I get this fucking frame. And then like the day it was supposed to be delivered, I get a notification and it says undeliverable. We're refunding your money. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I have no idea what happened. So get the money back and I'm like well I guess I'll just try to reorder it I don't know what happened so it's allegedly supposed to come Friday we'll see if it actually comes I like how you buy your brand new mattress I'm guessing and the first thing you think to buy is okay I'm gonna need pillows sheets comforters to go along with this like it's such an odd thing because the first thing in my mind okay now I need the bed the mattress frame like the thing to support it, to put it on. Cause you know what I mean? I, I yeah. don't know. It's just <laughs> it's I a mean, little backwards. I mean, I got everything at once, but. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So it's not a, it's not a multi-process. No. Uh, did you, so did you actually go to the store and try out the bed or did you just strictly online? Strictly online. When I hey, took a trip to Florida, I was sleeping in somebody else's bed and it was like the most comfortable bed <laughs> I've ever slept in. So I was like, I need to get something similar to that that isn't nearly as expensive as that bed. So I got the cheaper version of the exact same type of bed. It's pretty comfortable. I think I'm realizing I like a firmer bed for some reason. As I get older, I don't don't really like like the super soft ones. Is it a is it pillow top? Yeah. Memory foam? Pillow top. Pillow top. 
Nice. I my next bed's gonna be a pillow top. One of those pillow tops that's on top of memory foam. I think is because this thing is it's great for my back, but it's just a little too. It's it's a little weird to sleep on. I actually might buy one of those memory foam, not memory foam, one of the pillow top pads to put on top of memory foam, just so you get the real bed feeling instead of sleeping on like hardened sand is kind of see, what this feels like. See, my old one was a full memory foam, and I, I mm-hmm. it was all right. I didn't like it that much. Yeah, it's uh the the funny thing is. I actually got a brand new bed. It was about four years ago now. And that's because I had stayed in an Airbnb and slept on a bed that changed my life. <laughs> it was, I don't know. I should have honestly ripped the tag off so that I could have bought the exact same bed. But it was amazing. Like the best bed I had ever slept in. So I I went out and bought, because I went back home, slept in my bed. and was like, this is just not cutting it. So I went out and bought a new bed after that. But yeah, so similar situation. Tell you what. I did uh, go through the mattress firm, so I have mm. supported the evil company known as Mattress Firm. I was about to ask that. It is a pretty, I mean, I'm I'm very much like I will not buy shoes unless I try them on first. I can't imagine laying in a mattress without knowing kind of how it feels, like just buying it solely online. I know this so. is sounds weird, and a lot of people won't agree. But I really did not want to be harassed at Mattress Firm. So I mm. I got something as close as what I wanted. I read all the reviews. They're very high reviews for the bed. And it was an excellent price at almost 60% off. So I'm like, you know what? And allegedly, it's a 120-day th- return policy, too, if you really want. So mm, I okay. did fuck it. Yeah. Yeah, the only problem is when you go to, like, the Mattress Firm, and lay on one of their mattresses. Those things have had the train run yeah, on them. Yeah. Of all of the fucking big Midwesterners asses laying on them, breaking it in for you. So when you lay on it, <laughs> you're like, oh, wow, this is really nice and comfy. Has yeah. a lot of good given, still <laughs> <Yeah>. firm. <laughs> Problem is, when you get it, when the boys fucking bring it up and, you know, you unwrap it and it, you know, finally inflates itself, that thing's stiff as a board. I think you're going to put an ad in Craigslist. For a Midwest gangbang on my bed <laughs> to get her broken in. <laughs> just go to uh, go to all of the restaurants and then just pick out the biggest yeah. people and then hand them the flyer. <laughs> Can you come have sex on my bed? I really need to get her broken in. <laughs> yeah. By that, I meant just, you know, large people, you know, rolling around on beds you know, trying them out. But yeah, you're way too, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you wanted to, speak of Midwest gangbang, you wanted to yeah. talk about your uh, <laughs> going to the bar. Uh, oh, it was just a funny story. So in the latest installment of Philip Leaves' apartment, I went back to my favorite bar. This was Monday night, the uh, night before 4th of July. And no one was, it was honestly, it's, you know, you know how, how packed that club can yeah. get, right? My favorite thing nowadays in my, in, you know, coming up on my golden years is going to a nightclub that is usually packed, but it just only having like 30 to 45 people. In. Yeah. It's so nice. Basically, they didn't t- they didn't steal the chairs from us. So we were still sitting around the bar. We were watching the summer league games. It was good. The only weird thing was you can actually hear the people that are around you when they don't have the loud ass club music playing. <laughs> there was a dude sitting right next to me. Let's just call him 
uh, a portly fellow. Uh, very, you know, he was in his probably. He looked like he was in his mid sixties, but he was actually probably in his forties. Uh, he didn't speak English that well, you know, just kind of sitting there drinking double, double scotches uh, <laughs> all like in the three hours I was there, he ordered probably seven or eight of these, you know, doubles coming his way. Yeah. At some point. So it's uh, it's one of those square shaped bar and me and my brother were there. We were sitting at the edge of the bar. And kind of on the same corner, but on the opposite side, there were two very attractive, probably 20 to 25 year old women uh, sitting, sitting down there, having drinks, talking amongst themselves. He basically keeps like nudging me saying like that girl, she keeps talking to me. And I look over and I'm like, <laughs> bro, I don't even think that girl knows you exist. Like it's not happening. You know, and he keeps saying, I hear her. I hear her talking to me in my ear. And he's got one of those Apple iPad um, earbuds in the cordless kind. Okay. And he keeps he he basically tells the the bartender chick to have her stop talking to him. Stop in or stop. Stop yelling over to him. And the bartender chick's just like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> but like smiles and nods, you know, and does the yeah. walk away thing. For a crazy person. Yeah, yeah. So he goes over and he talks to her. And of course, this chick is thinking that this, you know, disgusting old man is hitting on her. So she fucking brushes him off cold and hard. Just just as worse as she could. He walks away in just disappointment. Comes back over, starts trying to talk to me again. By this time, those two girls are looking over at me, thinking that I'm his buddy. You know, and I'm just like trying to I'm hopping my I'm hopping my bar stool like away from him, trying to avoid being looking like I'm with this guy. And but he just kind of shuts down, you know, looking at his phone, looking back up, pretending to watch the game about three or four minutes later. He gets up and goes back and tries to I guess he was trying to explain to her that he was hearing her yelling over at him. But now she's totally freaked out. She's, you know, looking over, still looking over at me like, what the fuck? Why is your friend doing this? You know? Like, yeah. It was just, <laughs> honestly, it's not like I was ever going to talk to her anyway, but it was, I don't know, just the people that we end up sitting next to. I swear we can never sit next to cool people for some <laughs> reason. It's always like the lonely old men. Well, maybe it's us, but it's always like lonely old men central. Whenever we sit down, the people who come sit around us. So, <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't have that awesome story if it wasn't for that that's crazy true. guy. Yeah, that's true. It it was <laughs> I don't know. It <laughs> kind of a stupid story. I thought it was funny. I mean, probably nobody cares, but let's just get into the episode. <laughs> Everybody loves a good crazy person. Yeah. January 1918. A one month old boy would be found in a basket in Gimbel's department store in Manhattan. Five years later, after bouncing from one orphanage to another, he boarded a train bound for Iowa. This train would arrive in the small farming community of Clarinda. A large group of curious farming families were waiting at the train station to see all of the children. At this station, that five-year-old boy would climb into a farmer's lap and ask, Are you going to be my new daddy? The man and his wife, Orly and Lillian Smith, looked at each other they had only come to the station out of curiosity, but they slowly smiled at one another and then took him home. This story, and many like it, would come from what we are going to be speaking of today, where hundreds of thousands of children 
would be sent across the country to live on farms and in small communities throughout the Midwest in what would become known as the orphan train. Okay, what is more cruel, that they're orphans or that they're getting sent to Iowa? Ooh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, their lives... Okay, so basically a lot of them were taken from kind of the bigger cities on the East Coast. And being taken from, you know, Manhattan, where they could have eventually grown up to have a city life and, you know, compared to living in a small town Iowa farm community, I don't know. I mean, they would have to put up with a pretty shitty life for the first 18 years, but after that, they're set. Right. On that farming family, they got food and shelter and everything, but then you have to live. So. That is true. They probably had to sleep with the animals. Yeah, a lot less uh, <laughs> a lot less fun when you're uh, living on an Iowa farm, as both you and I can attest. Yeah, yeah. It's it's <laughs> If you compare the farm life where we grew up to Manhattan, you know, not a lot of differences, but significant differences. Yeah, stories like me going to the club and just having a <laughs> sub-average, just having a whatever night, that would be like something I would talk about for three years if it happened while I was living on a farm. In yeah, Iowa, yeah, basically. very true, very true. Yeah, very shitty, very <laughs> boring existence out there. So before the modern era and the dawn of effective preventative and life-saving medicine, the lifespan of human beings was much shorter than it is today, with death seemingly around every corner. This is because standards for health, sanitation, uh, workers' safety, all of these things were basically non-existent at the time. Injuries and illness resulting in death were way more common than today. Not to mention, you could be killed by bandits, highwaymen, native attacks, or possibly the farm or manufacturing equipment that you were working on. With all these deaths occurring, a massive number of children would find themselves orphaned and homeless, in need of housing and intervention from any kind of group that they could find that would help them. It would become apparent early on in the history of the United States that without major intervention on part of these children, horrible futures would be coming to them. And this wouldn't really come until the mid-19th century. Okay, so you're saying basically dad's working at Macy's, he gets decapitated. <laughs> um, he has all these kids, you know, because... I don't even think they had things like condoms or whatever. So there's a lot of kids and they're yep. like, Macy's is like, you know what, kids, we're going to do you a favor. We're going to get you a train ticket. And then they just are like, send him to Iowa. Problem solved. Yeah. Yes. In the horrific incident of a mannequin falling on them, crushing them and leaving their poor children without a father. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so really it was a lot of basically city folk who maybe immigrated, they were off of the boats or first-generation immigrants. Uh, a lot of them had large families, and at the time, Industrial Revolution, jobs were, you know, there was a lot of need for labor. The problem is it was so dangerous. People would end up becoming injured, disabled. A lot of people would lose limbs, and then they would no longer be able to provide for their family. Some would even die as a result of their injuries. So basically... Some of these kids would become orphans who maybe had both parents still living. I don't know why they didn't do what Britain did and just use these kids as chimney sweeps or put them in oh. mine holes. Or 
Oh, they did. The okay. problem is there were so many kids that there was a, a job shortage. There were to... so many okay. children. There's only so many news. Like, basically, they worked, you know, like what you were saying, chimney sweep. They worked in factories. They worked in sewers. They worked in mines doing all sorts of shit. Okay. problem is there's only so many jobs to go around. And as I'll mention later on, there were tons of these poor children that, like, needed work. And... I mean, children, you wouldn't even think of these children like you'd be contemplating giving them cell phones. They're, they're on that line nowadays. Back then, they had basically full time jobs and were supporting their or helping to support the family. Well, I'll tell you what, the Midwest, they'll always take free farm labor. Oh, or drastically uh, underpriced. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Basically, what happens in the Midwest, if uh, there's, you know, farmers that need corn shucked or, you know, rocks picked, hay, uh, bales of hay, you know, taken out of the fields, your dad will pimp you out. Yeah. To your, yeah. <laughs> to the neighboring farmers for maybe five dollars. Yeah. If you're lucky to get paid at all. Yep. So. Yep. Very and true. if you're doing it for your dad, it's free. Be very so. true. <laughs> <laughs> you got uh, you earned your bed for that night, I guess. So. <laughs> Now, as far as the United States history goes, early on, it was only from the alleged kindness of religious institutions that handled the brunt of what we think of as social services in the pre-progressive era, with federal assistance mostly non-existent at the time and state government programs being very hard to apply for, with help from churches being the only avenue for the city's poorest individuals. This most included children. Now, many of these children would find themselves becoming orphaned, created as a result of either their caretaker's death or possibly a family's extreme poverty and the inability to feed and house that child. They would be too young to yet contribute monetarily for the family. This situation never worse or more apparent than in the largest cities on the East Coast, that being mostly at first Boston and New York City, where a mass influx of European immigrants had created a decreased need for child and immigrant labor, leaving many families unable to care for their youngest children and their older children unable to find work in the city's factories because of just the mass number of immigrants that had come in. These immigrants also didn't have relatives in the U.S. that they could send their children off to and were forced to give them up for adoption, if not already resulting in their own homelessness. So basically, you either gave them up for adoption or you just kind of set them loose on the street like a cat you didn't want. <laughs> ah, yeah, I the, the religious organizations will definitely take them in. Not really sure why. I mean... Is it like a long-term investment, you think, in the kids? I don't know. We talked about the Shakers last week. And that, uh, what was it, the Quakers, the religious group we talked about last week, taking in kids to kind of convert them to their religion. The ones who didn't fuck, basically. Ah, uh, I can't. So, um, the Adventist. Yeah, the Adventist. Uh, whatever Kellogg was belonged yeah. to. The one where he didn't screw his wife. Basically, a lot of those churches would kind of set up these orphanages and take on as many as kids as they could to try to convert them into their religion. Many of them either escaped early or like left and never looked back when they turned 21 and could get out of there. 
themselves. You know what would have probably helped their cause? Not like physically and, well, as we know now, sexually abuse them. Um, yeah. It. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't even know what Mother Superior, I've never even heard that term until you start hearing about these orphanages. And she's like the Adolf Hitler of the orphanage. Yes, she is the tyrant of the uh, the whole thing. Well, I mean, it's who knows? In real life, there might have been some nice ones. But definitely True. in any fictional adaptations, always. Yeah. You know you've went wrong in life when a nun has had more sex than you in the case of Dr. Kellogg. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You, <laughs> you done. Well, he probably thought he did something right with his life. True. But, you know. He probably yeah. called nuns whores, to be honest with you. Just because they uh, experimented a tiny bit before uh-huh. they took the fucking cloth. Uh-huh. <laughs> you skink. <laughs> <laughs> now, by about 1850, it was estimated that nearly 5% of the entire population of New York City was abandoned children living out on the streets, supporting themselves as newspaper salesmen, shoe shines, chimney sweeps, and factory workers. Also, of course, taking part in petty crime, many of which would form gangs to both protect themselves and to organize their own crime rings. When these children would be picked up by the police, they would be placed in jail cells along with adult inmates. Some, later on, would be sent to poorhouses and overcrowded orphanages, holding anywhere between 200 and 2,000 children more often than not, experiencing extreme abuse and neglect throughout the process. That is insane. 5%. Yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously New York's not as big as it is now, but still, that is a lot. Yeah. Imagine living in a city where 5% of the people inside of it are homeless children running around in packs. Gotta say, you know, I would be terrified. Yeah, not all of them are running around in gangs, you know, robbing people, busting into places, doing all that shit. A lot of them are just like you would see them on the streets, you know, shoe shining, a newspaper salesman, kind of like the old image you have of the kid holding up, you know, the newspaper trying to sell it with the headline on it, the big headline, like those kids. I'm just envisioning that like stereotypical kid with that really old crutch with one leg missing with the newsy hat on and you say mr mr can i can i get his face some change that's all i can yeah timmy Uh, tiny tim yeah Yeah. tiny tim but there can't be that many tiny tims in new york right now oh no definitely not so they've done a lot to kind of curb this situation from happening uh, since the progressive era, it's obviously gotten a lot better. You're not going to see gangs of, you know, eight years old, eight year olds living out on the street. I mean, maybe you might see like as young as like teenagers, but a lot of them get swept up too. So. Yeah, we went to New Mexico, isn't it? Aren't they known for packs of feral children? Um, the weird thing is, so we'll, we'll go to the graph later on and we'll talk about it. Only a few actual orphan trained kids were sent there. But yeah, uh, it's mostly packs of feral uh, New Mexicans out there. Uh, the uh, the unkempt whites of New Mexico. I like. Can to call you, it. if you have a pack of meth heads, can that be considered a pack of feral humans? I guess. Yeah. You know, I okay. mean, a lot of them are extremely enterprising. 
So, you know, they're always looking for a couple of bucks here and there, I suppose. <laughs> uh, obviously illiterate, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's New Mexico. <laughs> but now, in 1853, in reaction to the ongoing issue, Protestant minister Charles Loring Brace founded the Children's Aid Society of New York City. Uh, he had felt that these orphanages were no more than warehouses for spare children. Also, that the homesteads of the newly settled West would be a much better place for these youngsters, not only for their benefit, but also for the benefit of the city inhabitants and the city's social institutions, which were being heavily weighed down by the torrent of leftover youth. With these young boys and girls, some only infants at the time, eventually being sent across the country to be raised in the heartland of America by men and women looking for children to love, or more often than the directors of these programs would care to admit, simply a strong back and nimble fingers, perfect for cheap child labor. With most of these children being sent out on what would become known as the orphan train. Well, I mean, let's put ourselves in the 1850s helmet here, Phil. If yep. you, in the Midwest or, you know, farm country, if you're getting physically and emotionally worked to death and also probably getting beaten by your father, I think yep. that is how they showed love back then. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, all the way up into probably the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> in Iowa, eventually. Yeah. Actually. But uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things. So it's not like the Midwest that we think of now that's sparsely populated in its own way. This is sparsely populated in a separate way in which it's just farmland, a few farms and a couple of settlements that's kind of service the surrounding farms. There was not a, a ton I mean, some of the biggest cities in, we talk about it a lot, Iowa at the time only had like a maybe a few thousand people at most in the Midwest. Chicago during this time was basically like a cow town, you know? Yeah, it, yeah. I mean- That's the biggest city in the Midwest now. I mean, yeah, it was um, known for the uh, meat packing, right? Yeah, Chicago. So that's kind of one of the deals is- this area of the country was still being settled. And that's why you would bring these kids out there. So Brace would actually write, it is to get them utterly out of their surroundings and send them away to the kind Christian homes in the country. And that was kind of the idea behind this. Get them out of the cities, out of the gangs, and get them on a farm, get them fed, housed, you know, in church, basically. That sort of thing. I know. I mean, maybe you're, gonna, you're probably going to go deeper into it, obviously, but... Yeah. On the surface, it seems like in the lesser of two evils, it probably would be better for the kids to be sent to a farm than just rummaging around the city, probably going to end up dead way before their time. Oh, yeah, definitely. So that's kind of more for we'll be talking about at the end of the episode, okay. kind of Charles Brace himself like had to grapple with this throughout the years because there was a lot of controversy with this program. Uh, both people not thinking it was right to take these kids away from some family members that might still be around in the cities. Also people out in the country who didn't want a bunch of, you know, possibly wild city kids come into their town their, or their farming neighborhoods, whatever you want to call them. They're rural communities, we'll call it. Well, we know 
Midwestern country folk, their two biggest fears in the world are city folk and anything communist invading. So those are literally their two biggest fears in the world. Yeah, uh, June wasn't exactly Pride Month in a lot of these rural communities. <laughs> no, absolutely You're not going to no. see a lot of flag no, out on their poles. No, so. no, no rainbow cows or chickens. <laughs> You're not going to see any of that. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, they really, I thought you were going to say just anything different. Uh, that's what they really don't like is uh, anything different. I also have another funny thing from uh, the bar last night. I out of you know we went to that first bar which you order nicer drinks from then we went to the shit bar where you you know it's the hole in the wall type bar after that yeah and out of you know out of just whatever i just always get bud light you know not even thinking about it and my uh my older brother was all worried that people were gonna look at us funny if we were drinking bud light and i was like oh dude that's for poor people that's <laughs> Only poor people care about that. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe not poor monetarily, but poor in spirit. You are in a conservative state, but you are in the like hipster neighborhood. I think you're gonna be just fine. Yeah, even though they are pretending to be very poor and very backwater, they're still by proxy a little bit hipsterish. Yeah. So I think I'll be fine. Yeah, 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 for sure. Now, the pilot program for this saw boys and girls sent out to farms in Connecticut and upstate New York, with the first actual orphan train arriving in Dowagiac, I said that very poorly, I'm sorry, Michigan, on October 1st, 1854. There was a total of 45 children on board who ranged from infants to young teens, and they were sent out on the rails. 15 of these children would be adopted on the first day. Eventually, 37 in total would be adopted at that first stop. The remaining eight would be sent to Chicago and eventually onward to an orphanage in Iowa City where they had all been expected to be homed to various rural communities in the area. But because of this, the first orphan train was considered a resounding success resulting in an eventual 250,000 children being sent across the country between 1854 and 1929. Holy shit. That is a lot of kids. Here's what I... So when they had these kids on the train going there, and they, like you said, there was only eight of them that didn't get adopted, right? Yeah. Are these people picking them out like they're going to a pet store? Like... We will talk about that. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. one of the big controversies with this. Okay. Uh, I should also say, though, those 250,000 children, not all of them were sent out by the Children's Aid Society of New York City, Charles Brace's foundation. There were many other kind of like foundations that were set up by wealthy philanthropists and religious institutions uh, later on that were also sending kids out. Okay. Uh, that's just the total number. Uh, they did send out, they're kind of like the the one most known for it, and they sent the majority of the kids out. So Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yes. But your fears of how the children were picked out, y- you'll you'll see kind of how they how okay. they were picked out. Okay, so. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, it's oh it's yeah, it's coming. Now, some of these children could actually be applied for, either in person or through the mail. They would specify what kind of attributes that they wanted in a child, whether it be gender, eye and hair color, temperament, physical fitness, 
really importantly to age with the adopting family being set up with the best available orphan that would fit their wants. They would be sent out by trains and delivered to their new family at the receiving stations. Also, along with them, were non-ordered children who were sent along, usually between about 20 and 40 total. Uh, there would be a couple of adult chaperones along to care for the children during transit. Now, at first, these children would be sent off in no better than converted cattle cars, though there was a lot more funding that would come in throughout the years, which would result in better accommodations, with children in the 1920s orphan trains being sent in plush sleeper cars for their voyage across the country in comparison to the ones in 1850s. Okay, well, I mean, I guess at least that got better. It is kind of funny, like... <laughs> They're looking for a specific build. Just envision like 1800s farmer. Like, I need a very beefy boy who can pick <laughs> up a lot of heavy shit. Basically, yeah, you could ask for that. Uh, it was one of those deals where they're like, you know, the in the best health. You could basically say, like, I want a blonde hair, blue eyed nine year old who's got a strong back who can, you know, who's not uh, going to talk back to me. And they would try to find you that. If I was like, I need a 10-year-old who can spit his tobacco at least 10 foot, <laughs> that's the kid I'm looking for. I'm sure there were plenty of those in Iowa <laughs> yeah. to choose from. But yeah, I mean, yeah, if you wanted it, they could probably find it. You know, or they would teach him how to chew tobacco along the way. So Okay. Yeah, I, I imagine chewing tobacco is pretty important right now. <laughs> Definitely. Now, these trains would make stops at different stations and cities across the country where the unordered children would be paraded out on stage and they would be told to also make a plea for someone to adopt them. Oftentimes, they would sing a little song, recite a little poem with prospective parents lining up to feel the children's muscles and count their teeth to judge the overall health and physical fitness. This would more resemble a cattle auction. And this is where the phrase being put up for adoption actually came from. Oh, okay. All right. I I hope the practice of a prospective adopting parent feeling up a child's muscles has has went away as the years progressed. It seems mildly inappropriate. Um Yeah. From every movie that I've seen, uh, there's something kind of like this when they have like prospective parent day at some of these foster homes where they kind of they dress the kids up and have them like do their little talent and, you know, try to get the try to get the people to adopt them. So well, not quite not quite, you know, the parade, but kind of like it. You well, know? I'm sure you've seen the documentary Angels in the Outfield. Um, yes. with the uh, foster kids and the angels, and I, it's kind of a weird movie, but that's all I keep thinking about during this episode. <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about the great documentary, Like Mike. <laughs> like Mike. <laughs> also, oh a situation uh, in an uh, in an orphanage, yeah. basically, yeah, in a foster home. We call them now, but yeah, is orphanage offensive now? I guess I wasn't. They don't use the word orphanage just because of how kind of like the connotations that come with it, okay. I think. All so right. they try to use like better words for it. Just kind of like they uh, they don't use the word asylum anymore. 
they like mental institution even that actually term has gone away a little bit it seems like but yeah they changing the branding basically they kind of the bad stigma that orphanages have gotten they, um, over the centuries they seem to love the word asylum for uh latin american people oh that's a different meaning but i'm just saying asylum. i know i know i'm just saying <laughs> they love that term in regards to that basically yeah, yeah that's yeah. Uh, that's where you're only healed <laughs> you're only gonna hear that word nowadays <laughs> unless it's some 80 year old talking about where he sent his wife what about she got a little too whippy with him what about batman arkham asylum bro oh that's true yeah technically though that comic book series is like what, what 70 80 years old now so <laughs> should it be arkham uh mental health facility <laughs> basically and okay. they'll be treating the joker a lot too. <laughs> yeah. it's a lot cleaner walls let's just call yeah. it so uh, one of these girls who was actually sent on the orphan train uh, remembers a farmer with as she put it old dirty hands examining her teeth ick yeah okay yeah worst dentist ever um yeah i can imagine a lot of farmers especially back then washing your hands wasn't the most important thing in your life. Hell, I we would say it ranked pretty low. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say hell. Even in the nineties, two thousands, farmers washing your hands. I mean, I don't get as freaked out with washing my hands as like a lot of people I know. Yeah, uh, it made me think of my my grandpa, my grandpa Wes's hands. And you know, when I was really really little, he was still a farmer. He wasn't a farmer after that, but it was just very old, rough. And never clean fingernails or hands. Yeah, just <laughs> just kind of the the old farmer, never never completely clean. Over you know fifty years of doing farm work, the the dirt just kind of stays in this pores. The, yeah, I was gonna say but, the dirt just becomes part of the cracks in your hands. It's just part of your identity now. Oh yeah, that's how I was when I was uh, doing mechanic work in the Air yeah. Force. Yeah, like, just never, never clean because it was always in the your skin has to die and fall <laughs> before before that fucking the the all of the grease in the creases fall out. Well, basically. you, I mean, you know my dad, and he's been a mechanic his whole life basically, and his yep. hands are like permanently a different shade than the rest of his body. Oh, stained by old motor oil and yeah. Yeah, everything yeah. yep just grit yeah yeah that lava shit is fucking a miracle work though yeah uh, the yeah. pumice stone yeah yeah that is pretty good the uh, ground up uh walnut shells pretty sure that's what's in that yeah that's yeah, great stuff so basically from what we were just kind of talking about this does actually resemble kind of like the slave markets of the 19th century. The similarity between those situations and what the children riding the orphan trains were experiencing. Ironically, Charles Brace was an ardent abolitionist and refused to send the orphan trains to slave states of the South due to his opposition to their laws and practices. Now, as it turns out, there were opponents of orphan trains on both sides of the slavery argument with pro-abolition opponents opposing the transport for its resemblance to the slave trade, along with pro-slavery opponents of the orphan trains, claiming that those transits were upsetting the slave markets due to the competition from the influx of new farmhands and workers. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> holy shit. Yeah, I guess if you're a slave owner, um, you 
I get. I I don't know. Uh, I guess you'd be that concerned about disrupting your slave market. Like, what the fuck? It's just so. I don't, it's so wild to even think there was. It's parts of humanity where like slavery was a thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not just the U.S. Obviously, it's a lot of countries. I don't know. It's just such the like that whole connotation is just so fucking insane to think about. Yeah, there. I mean, a lot of opponents of this were kind of, you know, either you were calling it basically white slavery, as in, you know, you're sending these children to be workers out in the Midwest who were not really going to be paid. They were going to be paid in food and, you know, housing, basically. And, uh, you know, whatever education you gave them, what other clothing you gave them, that sort of thing. Hopefully you treated them good. They were hoping. That's a thing. They claim that they were keeping up with it. It's just there were so many kids out there. How could you? These would have to be massive federal programs to keep track of all these kids. So I uh, there was also, I was going to say the pro-slavery opponents. I think mainly from what I was reading, they were worried about the value of their slaves going down if their labor wasn't needed as much. That's what kind of what I was thinking well, that they were claiming. Yeah, I mean, I would assume that's exactly what they are because obviously to them that is their, I don't know, income, I guess, you know, free or slave labor versus yeah. these kids or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. It. Uh, I will say, even though this whole thing, this whole scenario is kind of, fucked up but I do think right now I'm like this is kind of a weird double edged sword where like nobody wins you know what I'm saying that's kind of how I'm feeling about this uh, just like yeah. the orphan trains in general because you damned if you do damned if you don't kind of thing but I will say we'll give Brace credit for not allowing these kids to go to the slave states yeah here's kind of what I was thinking throughout this whole thing did you have to send them all the way out to like Nebraska, Iowa, Missouri? You know, did you have to send them so far out? Maybe they could have stayed on farms kind of close to home, upstate New York. Actually, New York took the most. I'll, I'll mention in a minute here. They took 33,000 of these children. It's just the thing is there was communities and farms kind of spread along the East Coast that you might have been able to send them to. I don't know if you needed to send them so far away from New York. Kind of what I was thinking too is in the case of, you know, there being children out on the streets, these children have no one looking after them. Both their parents died. They have no extended family in the United States. This is a very good program to get them adopted into a new family. If they're vetted properly, get them yeah. adopted into a new family, get them maybe a new life, some skills and a fresh start. The problem is a lot of these kids they were sent out to the Midwest. They maybe had one, if not both, of their parents still alive and families back in New York. A lot of them would either escape early or leave after they turned 21 and just go straight back to the city in search of their families. Yeah, yeah, that's a... I don't know why the Midwest. I mean, is it, you lived here uh, still in the year 2023, there is a lot of open land. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, there's a lot of space to breathe if you live in, you know, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, uh, well, Illinois. 
Go ahead. It's all corporate-owned farmland. But <laughs> but what I'm saying is you will not feel cramped <laughs> in those oh, states. No. Um, lots of farms. Yeah, there's a lot of corporate farmland, but the country properties, they are Iowa is basically made up of small towns, like most of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, just thinking about your family's farm. I've been there hundreds of times while I was in high school. We went back there for, I think it was, I was there for somebody's wedding or maybe a 4th of July celebration after high school. And your grandma had started living on the property. And I went down, we went down to where your grandma's little like RV trailer was. And I didn't even realize that part of the property existed. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, there's a whole like farmstead that I that's connected to your guys' property. I didn't even know was there. Yeah, there's a lot of land there. Yeah, the, did I ever, you have, you probably haven't been to my parents in a long time, but the old camper's still there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Used for like summer parties that people stay over there so but i would assume these states you know obviously in your picture you can kind of see the amount of kids sent here yep was this like the prime farming land at the time oh definitely this was this was the breadbasket. so the midwest kind of that louisiana purchase area was kind of always seen as like this will be a breadbasket. So definitely this is where people were settling down, making little communities and then, you know, having these farming homesteads kind of built around them. And you can kind of definitely you can see. So Minnesota, the lower half of Minnesota is good for farming. The upper half is all trees, basically. Yeah, trees and vines. Yeah. So you can kind of see uh, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois. They're in black. They're the, you know, most heavily kind of seeded with these orphans and then it goes to nebraska kansas indiana minnesota kind of like there's that whole farm belt right there it was definitely the idea of like getting these kids out to the farm well here's the other interesting thing outside of the orphans what we know now is a lot of the (laughs) scandinavian immigrants were basically put here you know what i mean like the Germans, Norwegians, the Swedes, they, for some reason, were all like put in the Midwest. Well, one of the big things is with uh, different nationalities of the immigrants who came over, they would all come to ports on the East Coast, but they had all had letters written to them from people who had already gotten here or from maybe neighbors or, you know, people that they knew who had went to America telling them, oh, you know, we're a good place for you know, the Czech people is Protovin. A good place for the Scandinavians is Decora, that kind of thing. So they would come out here and then like Decora kind of looks like, you know, a Scandinavian village a little bit. That's because (laughs) so many of the Nordics came in and then had, they sent out letters telling their family, hey, come here. You know, it's good out here. The government did sell a lot of those people the land here though for cheap. Because at the time it was like, well, pretty, I mean, not unlivable, but it needed a lot of work. Yeah, it needed to be, yeah, exactly, uh, homesteaded. Yeah. The farms needed to be cut out. It's the way that Iowa looks now with gravel roads and fields. It did not look like that 150 (laughs) years ago. No. It was all prairie and yeah. God, can you- Woodland, prairie, fucking cut out. Can you imagine what 
northern Minnesota looked like before anybody lived here. God. Oh, God, just a dense forest. Yeah. <laughs> Holy fuck, you go up there now, like, on the highway, and it's a fucking dense forest. I couldn't even imagine what it looks like. Nobody lived there. Yeah, my boss, when I worked in in St. Paul at the Jimmy John's, she, she used to say that she was from the range, and I yeah. had her pointed out on a map, and it was very, like, the very upper tip of Minnesota. You go look at it on Google, and it's just trees. Yeah, it's uh the old Iron Range. The old black lung factory over there. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, but uh, some of the states. So if you go down to the the map below that, it gives you a number. So basically, you know that Ohio had a shit ton, seven thousand two hundred seventy-two. Iowa sixty-six seventy-five. Illinois had over nine thousand. Uh, Missouri six thousand. Definitely kind of the the frontier, the where the farmers were settling out at where they needed farm hands. That's where they were sent to. I can see Arizona, Alaska, and Hawaii not very friendly to the orphans. No, luckily for the orphans, they were not sent to New Mexico. <laughs> you got to remember, too, that is a hell of a train ride. Yeah. All the way out to, you know, getting out to those southwestern states. I mean, Texas might be as far as they're willing to send them. So, uh, Can you imagine them sending them to Alaska? My lord. Oh, God. <laughs> Those poor bastards. <laughs> I can't imagine being a 12-year-old in New York. You know, you've you know, you've know, gotten by on your own, done your own thing, and then all of a sudden they put you on a train. Could you imagine being sent to Utah or Wyoming, and that's the last stop for you, and somebody picks you up out of that state? Oh, I, God, I would be, I'd be itching to leave as I'm, quick as I could. I'm guessing the Mormons were begging for these orphans, but um, I'm sure this guy, he's a Protestant. Yeah, Protestant minister. Yeah. I'm sure he kept him uh, clear of Utah. <laughs> yeah, he ain't letting them go there. <laughs> no, their numbers, uh, they fuck good enough. Yeah. Got the, they got enough kids. <laughs> now, for these children, this would be a terrifying process. Being told only that they were going out west, with many of these young children still having family living in the East Coast cities that they had been taken from. One of these former orphan train riders, Lee Nailing, remembered that. I do remember the children milling around outside the train, waiting to be assigned our seats. The big problem was that you never knew what the future held for you. You had no idea what the future ever held for you, and that was a great concern and a great worry. They were sent along with other children, possibly their siblings, and would go from station to station, not knowing if this would be their last stop, hoping that their family that takes them on also took their brothers and sisters if they had been along with them. Though, for many, their siblings would be sent miles away, losing track of them for decades. These children would be told when they got there, just kind of forget about your past and embrace this new reality of their lives in whatever situation they would end up in, whether it be good or bad. Yeah, it, it's just horrible to, to think about. If you're riding on the train with your siblings and yep. then you just get separated. Now, I just wanted to clarify. So the kids where their parents were still alive, the parents voluntarily either signed these kids up or gave them to the orphanages in New York City, correct? Uh, so the weird thing was that could have happened. 
they could have given them up for a you know given them up to the orphanage and then the orphanage sent them you know out on the rails some of them were basically either abandoned or their parents had died or something happened where the kids couldn't live with their family anymore they were just out on the streets when they were plucked off of the streets basically they were just put in an orphanage and then sent on these trains so it's a situation where if a kid got picked up for a crime and they really didn't have an address they were gone oh like, wow imagine if you're imagine if you were still living with your family you got picked up you were 11 years old you got you know picked up for some petty crime you didn't have an address and basically you didn't know where your parents were because they're also home kind of deal living from place to place they would just be like okay you're homeless you're an orphan gone on the trains you go okay yeah that's um i'm guessing that wasn't every case no okay but definitely that's not. definitely no. like the absolute worst case scenario yeah it is something that could have happened and a lot of these kids would basically say like i have i don't have a home but i have a family and they just didn't care you're you, we bought you the ticket you're going yeah. you know like one yeah. of those deals yeah not so. good not good oh yeah definitely now the woman that i mentioned before hazel latimer who had been on that orphan train who mentioned about the man with old dirty hands she also recounted that while in the orphanage she quoted i just finished eating and this matron came by and tapped us along the head you're going to texas she came to the next child you're going to texas well some of these kids they clapped and laughed though when she came to me I had looked up and said, I can't go to Texas. I'm not an orphan. My mother is still living. The woman looked at her and said, you're going to Texas. No use arguing. Ooh, that is not good. So her mom was just in the hospital and they were going to send her to Texas. Yeah. So it basically kind of sounds like she knew where her mother was. She just wasn't able to take care of her. She was in this orphanage until her mother got out. But, you know, on the train she goes. So Okay. So they they had like a very short deadline that if you don't get out of the orphanage, then you're out of there. Yeah, it's one of those deals. I I'm not exactly sure when Hazel was sent along, but from kind of the sounds of it, what I was reading was it was when this was very well established. It wasn't in the okay. early years of like trying this out. It was very much like a process. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Like it was known that we were sending kids here. Oh, okay. Gotcha. As we mentioned before, when discussing the graphic of which states these orphans would end up in, the state where the most children were sent, like I said, was New York, more, you know, upstate New York, with a total of 33,000 children delivered to the rural area near the coastal cities. Though the majority of the attention was actually on the farmlands of the newly settled Midwest, with the states of Ohio, Illinois, Iowa, and Missouri taking the next four top spots on that top five list, where it was theorized that farmers would take these children on more easily as it would ease the need for farmhands throughout the sparsely populated area. Yeah, okay. That, I mean... So is was upstate New York farming too, kind of? Oh, it still is. Still yeah. is. I okay. mean, there are there are cities 
you know, they're not as big as New York City, so people don't really think about them. There's cities up there now, but it's it's still. Uh, I think people call it kind of like orchard country is ah, what it is now. Okay, uh, It's where New Yorkers go to see the leaves changing, that sort of situation. I don't think that the Hamptons, though, I don't think they are doing any sort of manual labor within that area. Yeah, I would be, uh, I don't know. <laughs> there probably is jobs for kids out there who do like stuff on golf courses and boats, and, you know. Yeah. I think yeah. kids do still get used for carrying around the bags on the golf course, um, caddies, yep, whatnot. Yep. Also probably out there serving drinks and stuff. But yeah, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of farmland up there, I'm guessing. Can I tell you something controversial? What's that? I watched Caddyshack probably like two weeks ago, right? I kind of feel like the humor doesn't hold up. I uh, oh, Okay, yeah. Haven't seen it in about probably 10 to 15 years. Okay. So. I think you should fire it up. I think everybody should fire it up. It's funny, but it's, I don't think, as funny as people remember it. That's one of the worst things you can do is taking a classic movie that you really liked at the time with the fond memories and then rewatching it after a couple of decades because it will ruin it for you. I tried to watch, what was it? The Wedding Singer, some of uh, some of Adam Sandler's early movies, and I still thought that they were good for the time that they were made in, but just not as funny. Hey, Happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, they still hold up. Yeah, Happy Gilmore, that still holds up. That's a classic. Yeah. But I could see how people will, people watching it for the first time now, maybe when like younger people. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now, when the children would show up on these stages, the minders would put them in new clothing and, of course, give them a fresh Bible to hold, hoping that the child would be taken in by the kindness of these strangers. Though this wasn't what we today think of as adoption. With these new families, never expected to legally adopt these boys and girls. In fact, it was more closely resembling uh, the foster system. Actually, this was kind of the template that we have for our current foster care system. Mostly, the expectation was to house and feed them. With the real theory that their new wards would work for them until the age of 21. At which time... The new families were expected to give them $100 and wish them the best of luck on their future endeavors. Uh, That was for the situation of farming families, uh, while shop-owning families would be expected to give their adopted child laborers a a periodic wage as if they were uh, a a worker uh, throughout their time minding their family stores. Also, for the farming kids... They were expected to be given a wage only if they were like an older teenager. Okay, so the store ones, store uh, owner orphans got it a little better. Yeah, well, I imagine it depends. So it depends on if you would like farm work better or, you know, working in a store better. Uh, It also depends on what kind of family you were given to. Basically, but yeah, I, if you were working in a store, supposedly you're supposed to get a little bit a little bit of a wage. I doubt though they were given the wage that an adult would be given, which was also shit back then. So, <laughs> very true. I do feel like the farm though, you're probably getting a better overall meal. Oh, definitely. Yeah, even during the Great Depression, they would talk about. Uh, people in the city who had jobs starving because there wasn't food around uh, while people in the country wouldn't have any money because 
you know, they weren't getting anything for their for their produce, but eating very well because obviously they were growing. So yeah. Growing it, not able to sell it, you eat it. Yeah. So very true. You got fresh fucking beef, man. Oh, exactly. Well, I mean <laughs> probably uh probably eating a lot of eggs, I imagine. Yeah. If you got chickens very, eating a lot of very, eggs. Very, very true. Just like Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> now as far as far as how likely a child has to be adopted, uh, age appearance and abilities played a huge factor on the likelihood of that child being placed uh, infants were actually seen as the most desired by prospective parents with children being seen as set too much in their ways uh, to be influenced by any further environment uh, by the age of 14 they would be seen as wholly unplaceable not to mention at the time a 14 year old was pretty much seen as an adult on their own also important for the placement of these children was the language that they spoke. Uh, there was a big effort made for prospective families to speak the same language as the child that they were taken in. With a lot of these children having to go to extra stops just to find a family that spoke their language. Uh, race, also very important. Uh, it was thought that Midwesterners only wanted children that looked like them. And because of this, the majority of the children riding the orphan trains were Caucasian. Though the hardest child to place, sadly, were the ones with mental and physical abilities. Often, they would ride the entire length of the route and then end up in asylums or poorhouses at the end of their journey. Oof, God, that's uh, that's really tragic. I don't know. You could see hardened people like this, and I guess if they're just willingly taking in children, yeah. Unfortunately, I think they, I don't know, it, like the the mentally or physically disabled kids would probably have no chance. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you got to think a lot of these families. Maybe they only had room at their table for one kid. And, you know, that's the only one that they could feed and clothe to get the work out of them. And if it's a kid with a physical or mental disability, they wouldn't think of that as being like a good farmhand. Back then, too, a lot of these kids were, you know, children with mental disabilities were often kept in the attic, basically, yeah. or sent to yeah. asylums. Very, some very terrible stories back during this time. If they even allowed them to live at all. They're terrible stories about, you know, people with mental or physical disabilities. Shit, man, that that was going on all the way into like the fucking 80s. Oh, yeah, it's unless unless they were lucky enough to be born, but unless they were born into a really like wealthy family where they could have, you know, nurses or be put into actual good facilities that weren't run by the state or yeah. heaven forbid religious institutions. Yeah. Yeah, but I yeah, yeah I, the, I I think the medical care too was just I mean I'm not giving anybody a pass, but I just I don't think they had any idea of how to help. Oh no, yeah. Well, they talked about closing down some of those orphanages or closing down some of those asylums in the like 60s, 70s, and 80s, and a lot of those uh, poor people were basically just living in their own feces, chained to the walls horrible horrifying conditions a lot of the places that are considered severely haunted now yeah were some of those yeah. asylums it's weird that you know it's such an american thing that you can't have 
a state facility to help take care of these people without it turning into this like treacherous thing. You know what I mean? Isn't there somewhere where you can kind of meet in the middle where you you have a state, you know, a state facility to take care of people like that? Also, they get proper health care. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just seems like this impossible task that they can never accomplish here. No. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's just the system and neglect. You know, funding gets cut every year. Resources get cut every year. And then they get sent more and more people along with the cut funding. So we got to remember different, too, different like, government, different governments come in and just completely chop it down. I was going to so. say, yeah, Nixon was a big one, closed them. And then all these Reagan. people and Reagan, too, and all these people with disabilities were just thrown on the street. Yep. And eventually you know, wound up in prisons or dead or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. just perpetually yeah. homeless, of, yeah. Lots of stories, uh, yeah. Uh, it's pretty, yeah, it's horrifying, but... Yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyway, back to this here. So, you know what I was thinking? You said the infants um, were the most desired one. I yep. mean, I guess, technically, if you had an infant, the infant would never know that that's not their real parents you know what i mean but unless they told them yeah it's uh it's like a blank slate situation and the same kind of thing happens now a lot of people adopting children will only take a child that's less than like five years old once a child hits a certain point they're just kind of seen as like they're going to be in the system forever because they're just not going to be you know placed in a home they're just going to jump from foster care to foster care until eventually they're walked out the door at 18. Yeah. So. Yeah. One of our friends growing up in high school was a foster kid who then became full adopted. But his like, you know, you remember his parents, they adopt, they fostered kids all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, this isn't to say that only white children were being adopted at this time. Uh, we've actually mentioned in our previous episode on Indian boarding schools, uh, many Native children were actually forcibly moved away from their homes and into white Christian families. This was in an effort to civilize them as well. Uh, this was really, I mean, basically the same thing. The only difference being the orphan-trained children were expected to be more easily integrated into the families because they looked and acted so similar to them, while the native children were kind of just expected, you know, when your time comes, you just go, sort of. Yeah, yeah. I was. It's funny you mention that because I was kind of like seeing a little bit of a correlation here. I was wondering, so this guy... Did he, like, want to make sure all these kids went to Protestant homes? See, I don't really... Or is it just they had to be Christian homes? So you got to remember, this was just the biggest one. There was a ton of other kind of agencies set up. I'm, I'm... I'm basically using him because he's the first one who came up with the with the orphan train idea. You kind of use him as the example. There were other philanthropists who kind of set up um, other orphan train situations. I don't I didn't read anything about him only putting like Protestant children on these trains because you got to think if you're sending like we talked about some of the kids with who spoke different languages. If it was a German family, 
you know, most of them are going to be a certain religion that probably the German communities also are. But if you have Irish kids, they're probably going to be Catholic, you know, one of those deals. Yeah. Uh, Italian, Catholic, that kind of deal. So who knows? I, I would hope it wouldn't be something where he's only helping Protestant kids or forcing non, you know, I mean, if they're, you got some, some kid who's been a Catholic his whole life and he's only, he sends them only to Baptist families out there, you know? I mean, let's be real here in a, uh, uh, what do they call that? Where two circles kind of meet in the middle and it's the same thing. Venn diagram. Yeah. The Venn diagram of all these Christian religions is they're pretty similar. It's just based on the degree of intensity and how likely you are to go to hell based on your actions. So, you know, you have to remember, though, that's how we think now. (laughs) Very true. Also, the degree of intensity of these religions back then was way higher. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that is true. It is funny when I talk to people nowadays about going to Catholic school. I'm like, yeah, we basically got told we're going to hell for everything. And a lot of people are like, Jesus Christ, isn't that, that's kind of fucked up. I'm like, I don't know. I, I, I didn't really think about it at the time. I just thought we we're going to hell for existing, basically. I realized pretty early on that they were full of shit about everything. <laughs> uh, I was told uh, the altar boy stuff, like we when we had to learn like the chalice and the, you know, bringing the, when we brought the crackers, when you bring the wine, I was told to study that stuff. Two weeks later, they had me test on how well I could do it. And I didn't know any of it because I didn't study because I didn't give a fuck about it. And the priest told me I was going to hell, sent me away and said, I'll never be an altar boy. You'll never be able to do it. You're going to hell. And I thought, well, good. (laughs) I don't have to ever do this. That's when I realized (laughs) the whole thing was full of shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, but, but I mean, outside of that, how many times did they tell us we're going to hell for this or that? It was a lot. Oh, quite a bit. It was a yeah, lot. Quite. I remember being told that if we didn't marry a nice, like a Catholic girl, we were going to hell. Yeah. Like if, if you yeah. don't marry a Catholic person in a Catholic church, you're going to hell. It's like, well, wait, so everyone not Catholic goes to hell then. Okay. I, <laughs> so everyone except for us. Weird. Okay. Got it. <laughs> now, getting back to this. These agencies would claim that they vetted prospective parents to the best of their ability. Uh, In reality, this was mostly a first-come, first-served basis, with adoption agencies sending out agents to visit the living situations of the children after they were homed, uh, monitoring the child's well-being, along with the child being told to make sure to write the agency twice a year and report their treatment. Though, just like the current fostering system that we have today, these agencies were horribly understaffed, making it difficult to monitor the many foster children throughout the country, uh, resulting in a lot of abuse and neglect from the new foster families who would see these children much as just cheap labor. There were many instances of these children either running away or possibly being rejected or abandoned by their new families. I'm starting to wonder, and maybe you know, do you think this type of thing, like, let's say Mr. Brace, whatever, is that his yep. last name, Brace? Um, yeah. Like, the the program initially started out as, like, a pretty well-vetted thing, well-maintained, with well intentions, and then, just like everything good, it sours 
once more shit. once more people get involved and are maybe just seeing this as like a monetary thing um that's kind of I, like the feeling i'm getting here so yeah there is that uh this did run for over 80 years no program stays glowing for that long also i think that maybe charles brace had kind of an idealized version in his head of midwestern farm living you know what i mean yeah. good christian upbringing yeah you know he didn't realize that these people a lot of them were pragmatists you know what i mean they were pra- very pragmatic in kind of you know uh, pros and cons of having this kid living here okay you know, he maybe is, you know, taking up a spot on one of the beds. We're feeding him. We're putting him in clothes and we have to educate him, take him, you know, to wherever we go. We don't have to treat him like he's a family member. We just have to take care of him. It's kind of one of those deals. He thought that it's like, oh, they would become like one of the family. You know, you would just insert child here. They would start going to church. They would become like one of the Van Housens or whatever out <laughs> you know, whatever last names they had. And it was, it'd be all good. And it's just, in reality, it just wasn't like that. They were human beings who did real human being shits, which is shitty, being shitty to people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guarantee there were plenty of like, we say 1800s nice families. You know, the kindness level between 1800s and 2023 is quite a bit different. Um, Fuck. Yeah. The kindness level between 1990s families and 2023 families is a lot different. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But there's definitely bad people, obviously, but I'm guessing there were some nice families, you know, that like treated the kids like their own. I'm sure there was. I don't know. I just kind of, like you said, maybe he had this grander idea in his head. And unfortunately, people... They read, what is it, the Communist Manifesto, and like, oh man, this is the perfect society. But in reality, it doesn't really work that way. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's there's ideas, and then there's what actually happens. Oh, definitely. So getting a little bit into what you actually said, uh, like I mentioned before, these orphan trains were highly controversial throughout their existence, with stories of abuse and mistreatment coming out after the fact. Though stories of successful placements are, were put out by the agencies quite often, uh, sending out uh, printed forms of the letters that they had received from the children who had been placed in the best environment that they could have ever imagined, plucked from their extreme poverty in the cities to a happy home in the Midwest with a loving family that actually cared for them like they could have never imagined. Charles Brace would later write about kind of the controversy of the orphan trains and how he felt about it. When a child of the streets stands before you in rags with a tear-stained face, you cannot easily forget him, and yet you are perplexed what to do. The human soul is difficult to interfere with. You hesitate how far you should go. I so mean, it's kind of the deal. He's saying that it might be terrible to send them out to these families, but it's much better than if you just leave them out on the streets, that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's literally kind of, like I said, damned if you do, damned if you don't, the lesser of two evils. I don't I don't know. No, I don't think anybody has a, I don't know, I, I think this could be a very tumultuous 
decisive debate on how people would even feel about this story nowadays. You know what I'm saying? And as you mentioned, the abuse in this stuff, that stuff still happens in modern times in foster homes. And it's really tragic. I, I I don't even know how you stop it, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? Yeah, all of the problems that they were kind of having back then on those farms, potentially, are happening now yeah. in the system that we have. The system we have is obviously imperfect. Uh, it Honestly, this system might be better than what we do to the kids now uh, with a lot of, you know, the stories that you kind of hear coming out of the foster system. It's, uh, yeah, it's very, it's very divisive. Um, I don't know. Uh, you you think that sending them out to the farms, like you said, at least they're going to have clothes. At least they're going to have food and they're not going to freeze to death out on the streets or, you know, get killed in some, in gang violence or start petty theft. After a few years, they were coming out with some like some stats that they were letting people know that these children who were sent to the farms they actually did much better than they would have done had they been in the cities, uh, most of which reported that they had positive experiences from their families and like kind of, you know, what they learned on the farms and that they were better than the situation than they had found in the cities. Uh, there were some who kind of, you know, ran away, you know, started their life of crime. It's kind of thought that maybe they were a little too far gone. So it's one of those deals. It's it, That's entirely possible. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, it just seems like sometimes people are just destined to, I don't know, live that lifestyle. I guess. Um, but yeah, I I don't. I mean, if they're homeless running around on the streets of a big city, all right. I know during this time they probably didn't realize it, but there was guaranteed there's predators. You know what I mean? Um, oh yeah, and they were dealing with that at that time too. Yeah, they definitely knew that these kids were being taken advantage of. Yeah, either by the system or out on the streets. That's what I say, out on the streets. Like, when I was, you know, doing the true crime um, bubble, but all the time, I was, like, literally shocked when I was reading how bad child abduction pedophile problem they had, especially during, like, the early 1900s in the city. Yeah, and they just... They just wouldn't talk about it. Yeah, they're like, oh, the kid just ran away. I, that's all that happened. He just ran away. Yeah. Well, up until what, a couple of decades ago, cops would just assume, oh, he's probably out with his girlfriend. Or, oh, she probably just, you know, met some dude or, you know, we'll wait a couple of days. Then we'll go look for her if she hasn't come back yet. That yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. It's like now we know. No, that child was abducted while walking home from school, basically. Yeah. But back then they just closed their ears and oh, I don't want to think about the bad things. No, you very know? true. Very <laughs> just true. give me my Johnny Carson and leave me alone. <laughs> Make yeah, it better, but... Johnny. Make it better. <laughs> Make it better, Johnny. <laughs> whatever that, whatever the dude who is up with him, as long as you jump into his arm, feel whole. <laughs> <laughs> now, towards the end of the 19th and early 20th century, once frontier cities like Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago, and St. Louis had become thriving metropolises all on their own with the same orphan problems that cities back east had been experiencing all along. Now, to combat the influx of orphans into their state, governments would pass different laws, either outlawing or restricting movement of orphans into their regions, 
with Michigan actually being the first state to enact laws against the orphan trains entering their borders, even going as far as charging the agencies a fee per child that would be placed in Michigan from out of state. Uh, They would be followed by other Midwestern states that would also ban entry of these orphans. Uh, In the case of Iowa and Illinois, there were laws on the books to bar deviant, criminal, and insane children from being brought in from out of state. Though the biggest reason for the orphan trains ending was actually the Great Depression and the lack of resources that families would have to take in their new wards. Yeah, I yeah, I could see that. Um, I mean, Jesus, if you're an orphan on the street, the Great Depression hits. That's a hard life. Oh, yeah. It's like I mentioned before, if you were a you know destitute, poor person living in the cities, you were much worse off than someone living out in the rural areas. Because at least if you were a farmhand out in the rural areas making almost no money, you at least had food. They could they could pay you in food and you could sleep in the barn kind of deal. So a lot of the kids in the city, they lost their factory jobs and they were just out on. Yeah. Kids and adults. Right. Yeah. It's uh, okay. So when did like year wise, did the orphan trains like officially end or was it just like a very slow killing off of it? It was a very slow kind of killing off of it. Yeah. But 1929. Right around the Great Depression, it pretty much like that's when it, you know, full stop right there, okay. 1929. Okay. All right. No, it did drastically slow down uh, leading up to. Now, during the Progressive Era, the federal government would take over the reins from those organizations that had previously run the fostering of orphans, mostly actually copying what Charles Brace had created 80 years before. Uh, This was with the implementation of the modern-day foster care system that we have in place today. In 1912, the U.S. Children's Borough would be established with the mission of helping states support children and families and alleviate many of the factors that led to children living on the street. Also, state and local governments would become more involved in supporting families. The use of orphan trains would no longer be needed. So really, it was the federal government taking over the reins from these agencies, from the churches and the rich folk. I mean, that's usually how it goes. Um, Hmm. You know, here's the thing. I know, you know, there's kind of a gray area between government control and whatever. But and I know this ain't perfect. Right. But in this scenario where there's orphan kids, if you've got a private institution or especially rich people controlling this, you know, they're a lot more lenient on following the rules. Do you know what I'm saying? At least generally speaking, a government agency will have at least a lot of red tape. Yeah, red tape either being good or bad for the situation. Yeah. But red tape, at least there are rules kind of on the books. It's not like the Wild West situation. Really? So during the progressive era, so a lot of people don't really realize this. The federal government that we have today and how much power it has. This is the most power the federal government has ever had. It's been slowly increasing since like the 1920s, 1930s. Pre-progressive era, pre-1910, 1920, federal government actually had very little power. It had 
almost none of the huge oversights that we have now. Before that, there was no FBI. I mean, there was the Army and the Navy. Those were kind of like the big federal things and the postal Like, that was it. That Like, a lot of the federal programs that we have now, a lot of them were actually kind of spawned out of either the Progressive Era or the New Deal legislation. Yeah, I was going to say. So that's kind of that's kind of the big flip was the New Deal, actually. That goddamn, FDR. yeah, that goddamn liberal socialist FDR. Um, yeah. <laughs> goddamn Democrats. I love. <laughs> Take my land. <laughs> I love reading the, like, news headlines about FDR during the time. It's like evil socialist, blah, 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 blah. Some of these motherfuckers who are so anti-government and all that will, if you were, if you were to just pluck their social security that they've been living off, they would be very upset and pretty sure FDR oh, yeah. it was like the big part of that. Right. Well, it's funny because a lot of during the 2008 crisis, a lot of the people who were kind of admonishing people previously for taking any kind of like welfare and the, you know, calling it the federal nanny state, all of that. Once the rich people started to get hit in like the 2007, 2008 crash, a lot of them got fucking that tarp money. You know, a lot of them yeah. got bailed out by the government and the poor got no, yeah. that sort of thing. And they would still admonish people for like, oh, you living off the welfare state while they got huge money, amounts of money <laughs> from the government for those programs. Dude, it, Same with COVID. It, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. There's... um. Somebody was posting like all these senators and Congress people <laughs> who were complaining about something. I don't remember what some anti-government program. And then they were listing all the government or the <laughs> COVID forgiveness money that they took on there. And I'm like, these yep. motherfuckers are such hypocrites, man. It's OK if yeah. they have it, but nobody else can have it. Being pissed off if a poor person got a single dime yeah. while they were taking millions of dollars themselves. Definitely. Like, yeah. you telling me I can't be on my yacht for two months? This is <laughs> fucking a... This is absurd. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's Well, and then, the well, way off track. The small business versus... The small business is closing down while Walmart got to stay open. Yeah. What the fuck? It's yeah. bullshit. But getting... Uh, finishing this off. So after being placed, many of these children would lose their past entirely, though near the end of the 20th century, adult children of the orphan trains who were still alive would begin to have reunions and recount their trials and tribulations with the history of the orphan trains and their riders actually being immortalized. Uh, when a new museum was founded on September 15, 2007, uh, it's the National Orphan Train Complex. I got quite a bit of information from some of their websites. It's kind of cool. They held their grand opening in Concordia, Kansas in 2007. They claim to have a listing of over 7,000 riders from those orphan trains. Also, they have exhibits and artifacts and everything from that area. Uh, apparently, they also have like a boxcar that some of the kids were like taken in. So that's kind of cool. But there are listings um, that are gathered. A lot of the newspapers at the times actually did list like, you know, they announced kind of like the kids that were adopted, the city that they were taken to and like who had adopted them. I did actually I didn't send it to you. I forgot. There's actually a spreadsheet of all of the known Iowa children 
that were adopted in Iowa and sent to different towns. So I did look huh. up Wangen and Inns and Opat and Goodlax, and I couldn't find any names on it. So yeah, I um, I mean, I can't say for sure, but I know most of my family is German immigrants and Norwegian immigrants. It's like boom, boom. Uh, mom side German, dad side Norwegian. Yeah, all of my family. Uh, I'm a I'm quite a mutt of uh, <laughs> <laughs> of poor European immigrants. So I uh, Ireland, Czech, German, and Nordic. So yeah, we have the power of the runes, people. Um, yeah, uh, I don't. How are your feelings? First off, before I say this. I would go to that museum in a heartbeat. That place, it sounds very interesting. It sounds right up my alley. Yeah, definitely. Uh, kind of I looked into it a bit. I don't know. It's it's kind of, I would definitely go visit it. I love, you know, all museums, especially like weird, kind of weird ones like yeah. that. The whole history of this, it's so, it kind of tears at you. Because on the one hand, you're like, well, it's shitty that, you know, some of these kids... Some of the, it really benefited some of these kids, true orphans who were out on the street who needed a helping hand, went out to a family, you know, got a new start to their life, maybe something better. They might have ended up saving their life. Some of these kids maybe were in that orphanage just for a small amount of time, just until their family got back up on their feet. But they were kind of just ripped away from their family and had to go back years later hoping to find them. So yeah. it's, it's it's one of those deals where it's like, OK, the system the, and also you really wish that they would have done a better job like vetting yeah. the families who are taking yeah. these kids into because they made it sound like it was a, a highly vetted process where we looked these families up and down and we did the best that we could when in reality it was any you know, bumfuck Iowa farmer walking in there, looking at a kid's teeth and saying, I'll take this in and this in, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I, I think this is such a, a hard topic because like you said, would you try to help the kids, even if you're forcing them or do you just leave them to their own devices and probably, I don't know, let Darwinism take over. I don't know. It's, it's I I do think that like you said if they would have did a lot better job starting off vetting the kids that were actually orphans and the ones yep. that weren't that would probably be the biggest thing but yeah I don't it kind of shows it's very clear there are some people who are working for this organization who just straight up did not care at all unfortunately is Anywhere you, any place of employment, any job, any anything like this, you're going to have people like that. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's like a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. I don't know. It's it's hard. It's You feel bad for the kids. You kind of wonder how many of these kids in the Midwest or wherever were adopted and then they never knew they were adopted and like there's a whole branch of families that are still there based off the kid being adopted, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we looked at the number. Iowa at the time, pre-1920s, had just over a million people. So a total of, what was it, close to 6,675. 6, 6, so say Iowa, uh, 6,675 out of 
just over, you know, a million people were orphaned, brought in from other places. So if they kind of all were set up in these towns, that's a whole branch of people that have descendants who have probably no idea. Yeah, you know? I know. In Iowa, it's a significant number. Minnesota, maybe not so much. 3,258 out of the, what is it, like 8 million that live in Minnesota? No, it's less than five, right? And that's today's population. In Minnesota? Less than yeah. five? Yeah. Are you sure? I thought Minneapolis was close to five. Well, no. It's, not important. <laughs> it's 2.5. 2.5 to 3. Most oh, of okay. the state lives in the metro. <laughs> Yeah, most of the most of the state lives yeah. in the not shitty part, yeah. known as the city. So, if, or sorry, the cities. The that's cities, yeah. It. There's they two live in of the them. cities. There's two of them. God damn it. Um, yeah, but yeah, I don't know. It's a great story. I didn't even know this existed. I think, along with the history lesson of the Indian boarding schools, that you heard it, but you didn't really. I didn't really know much about. It. I think this is a perfect thing of. Something that's in the uh, American history that you had no, I, I didn't have any idea even existed. If you, I guess if any of your families, you know this happened to them, I guess, uh, Lee, you should definitely contact us. And where can they do that, Phil? Well, uh, we have no ability to help you find or research no, any don't. of this, so don't ask us. But if you want to tell us your story, hit us up on subliminaldpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story, any other stories or anything you want to tell us. Uh, probably even easier way to get a hold of us, a Subliminal Deception podcast on IG. Hit us up on Instagram. We love all the likes, all the you know replies, all the hatred even. Send us your hate mail. Definitely. <laughs> we love that. Uh, get a hold of Cody. He also has an Instagram of his own. What is that, Cody? Yeah, you can follow me at Cody's above. Thank you to everyone who's taking time to message me and all that. Uh, the last thing we ask you guys to do is to log into iTunes, leave a show five-star review, preferably written it doesn't particularly matter what you type in the box just please make sure it's a five star thank you to everyone who's taking the time to do that for us if you're a spotify listener it's even easier you just hit five stars hit submit that's all you got to do nice and easy and we greatly appreciate everyone who's taking time to do that for us as well well guys i hope um uh, there's probably a lot of you out here haven't ever heard of this before and you know what it's important to know your country's history. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks, guys.